Tonight, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to read from Ephesians 5, 31 to 32, and then I'm going to pray for us and then explain to you that tonight's a little bit different. Um, this is the Word of God. Ephesians 5, 31 and 32. We've read it before. We'll read it again. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So let me pray for us. Lord, teach us tonight. We're going to be discussing wisdom issues, dear God, and I'm not an expert, and these are gray areas. I pray that people will be, feel free to debate and struggle with these issues, dear Lord. We need you if we're going to talk, if, if truth is going to happen here. I thank you, dear God, that you're good and wise. I pray that the wise counsel I've see, received from older pastors would be beneficial tonight. I pray, dear Lord, that um, this will be a helpful discussion. In your name we pray, amen. If tonight is your first RUF, um, but also if this semester is your first RUF, we've been doing something really atypical and it's going to get a little bit more atypical tonight. Normally what we'll do in RUF is we'll do the serial exposition of Scripture. Next semester, um, for instance, we'll probably actually do the Minor Prophets, like all the books of the Bible we don't even know exist, um, with all those crazy names. And that's really what we do most of the time. But this semester, because this issue is pressing uh, at all times, once every four years, we're going to talk about relationships. Tonight we're going to do something even more atypical. Besides just being topical, tonight we're going to attempt to talk about dating, but there's a big problem with talking about dating in scriptures. Anybody know what the big problem is? Ah, the Bible says nothing about dating. So, what are we going to do? This is what I kind of hope, this is what my preparation has kind of been for this week. Um, drawing from principles from scripture and implications from scripture, and drawing from ex- personal experience and other people's experience, and then drawing from pastoral wisdom but really from older campus ministers, I would just want to talk about dating from a Christian perspective. So you, this is, you can discuss this, you can disagree with me. We are dealing more kind of in the realm of speculation than with like, this is biblical mandate, you know, you have to spend this much money on the first date, and you cannot kiss until the fourth date, stuff like that. Um, we're not going to make those rules, don't worry. But, uh, but this is an area, I, I want to be clear, this tonight is different from other nights. And what I'm trying to say tonight is I'm not expounding Scripture. I'm really drawing from the areas of experience, other people's pastoral wisdom, other people's experience, and then implications that are, ex- that are kind of extrapolated from Scripture. So this is a different night. Uh, if this is your first time, please come back. Um, uh, if I say things that offend you and you think this guy's crazy, I promise you when I talk about the rest of Scripture, I'm saying the same things the church has always said. Tonight might sound different. Um, so anyways, the topic of dating. This is the first point I want to make. And this is a, is a point we've made throughout the semester. I'm just going to reiterate it. Um, and we read scripture, uh, Ephesians, where Paul actually is quoting from, um, the book of Genesis. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. This is my first point on the outline. Relationships beg for definition. Relationships beg for definition. When you do the business of life, what you're doing constantly is interacting in relationships. And within all these relationships, more often than not, we don't think about it, 
But we actually have expectations for these relationships. We're constantly defining them. All we're really kind of, and really what I want to say is, what we're really doing all the time in all of our relationships is refining our definition and refining our expectation of all of our relationships. When you walk into a classroom at the beginning of semester, you have a set of expectations about how you're going to relate to the teacher, right? For some people, it's, I'm going to do the best I can to impress them and make the appropriate grades, um, with the goal really being pleasing the teacher. Some people, they want to make good grades with the goal of uh, pleasing a boss, so the relationship with their teacher is a different dynamic than I want to make you happy. It's actually, this relationship's about a third relationship. Some of you is, I want to do whatever it takes to pass. I don't care about our relationship. And that affects the way you relate with people. You're constantly kind of defining all of your relationships. And as you continue to interact with your teacher in the classroom, things change. You find out that, um, you know, there's someone easy to talk to. So all of a sudden, instead of being a withdrawn student, maybe like you typically are, you find you connect with this teacher. You have a different set of expectations. All of a sudden, you'll ask different questions of that teacher and all that kind of stuff. Um, You never think about it, but you're defining the relationship as you go. Does that make sense? Um, With your parents, you never think about... Well, actually, maybe you do. You never think about or rarely think about how you're defining your relationship with your parents. But every conversation we have with the parents is actually y'all working out what it means to be parent and child, right? Especially during the college years because you're in this weird kind of area of um, <clears throat> this weird area of kind of you're becoming adults. Especially now as you transition into adulthood, you're, figure, you're redefining that relationship. They give you money, but somehow it looks different from them giving you money as a middle schooler. You're allowed more freedom with it. They make certain requests of you. They want you to come home from the weekend. You feel at this certain point in time, you can begin to stand up to them or whatever. In whatever capacity it is, you're redefining your relationship with your parents at this moment. Does that make, are you all tracking with me? We're constantly defining our relationships. You know, roommate and friends, you have acquaintances, you have close friends. Those different kinds of friendships with each individual have a different set of expectations. There's certain things you'll talk about with certain people, other people you won't, with guys and girls, whatever it is. And what we've been doing this semester is talking about the definition of a relationship of marriage. And with all of these relationships, in a lot of ways, especially parent, especially friend, especially spouse, what we do as Christians is we go to Scripture and see, and, and, and most importantly, obviously with God, we go to Scripture and find out how it is God designed those relationships to be. And we find out that our definitions may be a little bit different than what He thought, and we're trying to bring it back in line with how Scripture talks about relationship. And in fact... God's primary statement that he makes over and over and over again in the Old Testament that defines what he's doing with his people is a relational statement. What God says over and over and over again throughout all of Scripture, throughout the whole Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Deuteronomy, the prophets, everywhere, is he actually makes this one statement over and over and over again. And it's probably maybe the most consistent kind of chorus line in the Old Testament. He says this all the time, I will be your God and you will be my people. One of the primary ways God interacts with His people in the Old Testament is He constantly is saying, this is the definition of our relationship. And when you get this, you understand what's going on between me and you. And so over and over again, He says, I'll be your God and you'll be my people. The Bible speaks to all these relationships and we're constantly defining all these relationships, but the problem is it doesn't speak to dating, right? And the reason, or at least one of the reasons, the Bible doesn't speak to dating is because of this. The Bible is not culturally or historically irrelevant. And if the Bible had a dating on chapter at the end of 1 Corinthians or 
uh, a chapter on dating, um, you know, at the end of Proverbs or something like that, it would be culturally and historically irrelevant because dating is a phenomenon of our particular culture at this particular time in history. And all throughout history, different cultures have proceeded to kind of bring people of the opposite gender together in different patterns, in different courtship patterns, in different times. You know, whole communities have been involved. You know, the town elders have been involved in how a guy and a girl come together. Different times, the parents are involved in different levels. Sometimes the mom, sometimes the father. When you look at all of history and you look at all of cultures, this phenomenon of dating is distinctly Western idea in the late 20th century, early 21st century. So the Bible doesn't address dating because the Bible is never irrelevant. And it would be irrelevant, actually, to the rest of the world and the rest of history if it specifically addressed dating. And see, the truth of the matter is, we think dating is it. You know, it's how people come together. And we kind of, implicitly in the way we think is, we think if I grew up in, if I was born in India, and if I grew up in India, and I would look around and be like, are you kidding me? Arranged marriages? This is insane. And that's kind of how we think we would think. But the reality is, is if you were born in India and you grew up in India, you would look at America and be like, that dating thing is insane. And it's because both of those systems are cultural constructs. Are y'all get that? They're cultural constructs. So the Bible doesn't address dating directly. So then the question is, second point is, how then do we define dating? And what I want to do tonight is actually kind of look at how we enter into dating kind of look at it in a sense, uh, hopefully what is a sample relationship that kind of reflects from true elements in all of our dating relationships and really see, okay, I think this is what we think dating is because this seems to be how we do it. And so this is kind of, again, speaking in generalizations, but this is a picture of how dating relationships happen, right? Um, You notice somebody in a particular social context, right? That's the first thing. Someone catches your eye either because of their personality, their looks, their dress, their demeanor, the way they laugh, whatever it is, someone catches your eye. It's in this group. It might happen at, the, at a tailgate. It might happen in class. It might happen in some social context. You encounter somebody and something stands out, right? And so what happens is, slowly over time, maybe among your group of friends, maybe in different social groupings, you kind of find yourself gravitating toward them socially, Right? You begin to notice this person. You begin to be with them a little bit more often than you used to. Um, you know, when your groups of friends are together, you kind of talk to them more than you ever have. And it might even be possible that people begin to notice this relationship kind of happening. But nothing's really happened. You know what I'm talking about. Um, and maybe there's this kind of low level of flirting that takes place, whether through language or even like physical forms of flirting or anything like that. And, um, it, you know, and of course, when that takes place, the people who are doing it think it's really discreet, but everybody around them sees what's going on. Um, and then at some point, uh, there might be even a buzz coming, you know, the, the, there's kind of a social buzz about them. They seem to be hanging out and all that kind of stuff. And then at some point, some version of the first date occurs, right? And, um, and it might be formal. Somebody might, you know, make the explicit ask, hey, I'd like to take you out to dinner, go out to a movie, something like that. But a lot of times it also happens informally, right? Um, people are over at someone's house watching a movie, and you all kind of find out you're the last two people there, and it's like, hey, you want to go to Waffle House? And so this kind of date kind of happens. 
which re- totally relieves the guy from actually having to do the formal ask-out, and he basically gets to date for free without taking the risk of asking out. Um, you know, y'all are the last people at Marvel Slab. You're the last, you know, these kind of ways, you find out you kind of have lunch break at the same time, and you just kind of end up having lunch together. Um, <laughs> And so this kind of informal or formal first date happens. Um, and, and, and what's happening with that is there's this kind of new element of social isolation, right? There's this little bit of kind of more pronounced element of we're together and slightly separate from the group. We've kind of said this friendship is not just about a group of friends being friends together, but something's kind of happening right here. And so you find yourself togetherish and this period can kind of vary in length and, you know, the guy wants to stretch it out as long as possible, especially if he hasn't had to actually do the formal ask yet because it feels like he's getting to date without taking any risks. Um, and, then, and then people ask the really annoying question, are y'all dating? And, and that really is frustrating because you're like, well, we're not yet. We've been hanging out a lot and I don't like it when people ask me that question. <laughs> and it's an annoying question to get asked. And it's because y'all haven't talked about it right. And so it's frustrating because what's really going on is you're frustrated by the fact that y'all really are kind of dating but not saying it. And so when people ask the obvious, it's really, really annoying. Because they're actually saying something true and you're like, yeah, that's what I wish it was, but it's not there yet. I wish you would say something, you know. And then finally, you have the DTR. Are y'all familiar with the DTR? Huh? <laughs> Define the relationship talk. I've heard other acronyms. Are there other acronyms y'all are familiar with? Huh? RTD? Huh? Relationship? Okay, okay. Well, eventually, <laughs> there's several different acronyms we could place here. Um, eventually, you have this, we'll call it the DTR. People have been asking you, it's been annoying, some point, somebody at some point, hopefully the guy realizes, all right, we've got to say something about this relationship, right? And this, when you have the DTR, that's the thing that formalizes the relationship, right? It institutionalizes the relationship. And sometimes it's, you've, you finally put the relationship into words, you know, I like you, I like spending time with you, and... and um, Sometimes it's a conversation, sometimes it's a series of conversations, but when you get on the other side of this conversation, you start to use these new titles for each other, right? Boyfriend and girlfriend, and it takes a little bit of time getting used to, and you hate kind of being defined that way, but it's kind of great because you're finally dating, and it's wonderful, and all that kind of stuff. And, um, and the institution is really, when we institutionalize that kind of relationship, is born out of what we said in the first point. You're in some kind of unique relationship that now is more than just friends, but you're not married, and you're not brother-sister, so there's this inborn need to define the relationship, to say, what is this relationship? What are we going to call it? What are the right sets of expectations? We've got to call it something because we're just not friends anymore. We're more than that. And so... That's what we call dating. And the question now is, what does that mean? What is dating? What does it mean? 
tonight, a lot of my points I'm drawing from uh, a campus minister who has a lot of experience at Ole Miss uh, about kind of dating, and his name is Les Newsom, and he recounts a conversation that he had with a girl student several years ago after she started dating this guy. They just met in a coffee shop to chat. She comes in, he's like, well, how are things going? I don't know the guy's name. And she said, well, they're going well. Last night we decided we're dating. And Les says, well, that's great. I'm happy for y'all. It's really exciting. And then he said this. What's different today uh, that wasn't last night? And he said, well, she said, well, I don't know what you mean. He said, what's different about your relationship now than it was yesterday before you had that conversation? And she said, well... We're dating only each other. And he said, yeah, he made this point. That's kind of been true for a while, though, for a couple of weeks, a couple of days, whatever it is. But has something besides that changed between the two of y'all? And he said, let me put it like this. If in a week or a month or a series of months, you met a guy who you really thought was cool and really wanted to take you out and you wanted to go out with, what would you do with the guy you're dating now? And she said, well, I guess we would break up. You see, dating, when we put that title on it and have the DTR, it's been institutionalized, and somehow it feels really, really different. You're kind of rid of of some of this social angst and insecurity you had about it because you wanted it to be defined. But this is the truth of the matter. Nothing has actually changed. Because if you want to go out with someone tomorrow, you can. Because the agreement is, we're dating each other right now. And that might not be the case in an hour. Dating is by nature temporary. And what I really want to say tonight is that the way we approach dating is really what we're doing is we're actually living a shadow of marriage. We're dying for a ritual that formalizes our union and defines the relationship. And so we have this dating ritual and we have the conversations that formalize it. And there's this kind of modicum of relief. Finally, I have a boyfriend. Finally, I have a girlfriend. Finally, the relationship's not awkward anymore. I have a definition for it. And the only problem is, is nothing actually changed. Because whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, wherever you're coming from, everybody agrees to this one point. Dating doesn't bind you to anybody. Dating doesn't bind you to anybody. The agreement is, I'm with you right now. And the agreement implied is, tomorrow I might not be. Our our definition of dating really is this. It's non-exclusive exclusivity. And if that doesn't make sense to you, the reason it doesn't make sense to you is because it doesn't make sense. And as the relationship progresses, there are fun times. Dating is fun. You have fun together. And then there are desperately confusing times. There are eventually going to be conflicts within your dating relationships. Some are going to be worked out. Some might be the end of your relationship. It may be the case that the conflicts kind of create a growing sense of frustration with the individual and a growing sense of insecurity about the relationship. And as the relationship progresses, there's also a progression of physical intimacy. Every couple kind of progresses at different rates. Different things hold you back at different times. But it seems to be that the physical relationship is a legitimate part of the dating definition, right? Because, after all, now they are your girlfriend or they 
are your boyfriend. This is what girlfriends and boyfriends do. It's never really questioned, just kind of assume that's part of it. And what's happening over time is that you're actually knitting your hearts and your bodies together under a faux arrangement that we call dating. And basically what you're doing is you're saying, I'm allowed to feel as if the other person is committed to me and do the kind of things that people who are committed to each other do, when in reality, our agreement that's kind of underneath it all that we're not really saying is we're not committed. And I want to suggest to you all that dating in this manner is the most confusing thing we do. That means it's not fun, but it's ultimately incredibly confusing because we enter into it. Um, and all we're doing is committing to be exclusive with the unspoken agreement that we might not be exclusive tomorrow. And this is why fighting in dating is horrible. And this is why fighting in marriage is glorious. See, Elizabeth and I are in covenant with one another. And tomorrow we might have a disagreement. We're trying to figure out schooling for kids, which is like wrecking the church at large. Everybody's debating about uh, homeschool or private school. I don't know. Public school. <laughs> We're trying to figure out the schooling issue. We're different people. We're going to have different sets of values. Not, you know, not major ones. We both love Jesus. But there are going to be certain things, certain ways we think about schooling differently. Elizabeth and I are in covenant. We can have an argument, and tomorrow morning I'm going to wake up beside her. And the next morning I'm going to wake up beside her. Fighting in marriage is glorious. It's the place where we forgive each other. It's the place where God even makes our marriage stronger. Our marriage is never at stake in any fight that we have. In your dating relationship, every miscue, right? Every misstep, every argument, every difference of opinions, every offense, all of this and every opportunity, your relationship's at stake. And this makes dating the most frustrating thing we do in life. And ultimately, what it really is, if we're dating this way, is we're living in a watered-down version of marriage. We institutionalize it, and then we kind of act like we have the right to expect things. This is what it means, you're my girlfriend. This is what it means, you're my boyfriend. To demand things like their time, like their energy, like their attention, like their resources. When in reality, the agreement in dating is, you don't have to give me those things tomorrow. And so you have these crazy conversations that I've had and, and we've all had where, you know, you're out in a social event and we're dating. Why didn't you talk to me, right? You know, how come you talk to them the whole time? I didn't know you were going to do this for the weekend. And what underlies all those kind of things, the way we're kind of running over each other in dating with our expectations, is the fact that we think and kind of allow ourselves to believe we're committed to each other when the definition of dating is that we're not committed to each other. And so we crush each other under the expectations that you're really supposed to have for a spouse in a lot of ways. We crush our boyfriend and our girlfriend under them. We get really, really frustrated. We don't feel secure about the relationship at all, and it's always on the line. Within this version of dating, y'all, if we enter into it this way, I mean, this is, this is actually the reality underneath it all. There's something actually deeply and beautifully true about the fact that we date that way. There's something that actually testifies to something wonderful about it. Because actually behind the fact that we feel the need to go and have a conversation with someone about the nature of our relationship and then proceed to have certain rituals, dating rituals, okay, y'all, those are the things you do in marriage. In marriage, you stand in front of a group of witnesses and you have a conversation about your commitment to one another. The difference is you're actually entering into a covenant instead of actually just saying, hey, I'll date you today, but maybe not tomorrow. 
You see, in all those kind of exercises that we do in dating, y'all, there's something in us that's actually testifying to the fact that we are actually made for marriage. And in some ways, in this culture, this culture is kind of stacked against y'all. It's, it's only been true in the last 150 years that people have, that adulthood comes at 22, 23, 24, 25. And that people, you know, until the 20th century were getting married at the ages of 16, 17, 18. That's when their bodies were ready. That's when adulthood is considered you're entered into adulthood. But in a lot of ways, you've heard people talk about prolonged adolescence. Y'all heard that term? Um, in a lot of ways, adolescence is being prolonged out into the 20s. We're kind of held in our in our parents' household. They're still our heads and all that kind of stuff. And it's because we rely on them financially and we're not allowed to grow up. And it totally makes sense that the institution of dating arises in that context. Because what happened is when people were getting married at 16, 18, and 19, you're not allowed to get married anymore because you're not considered an adult, Right? It totally makes sense that dating arises, that we create this faux version of dating to kind of fill that void in our lifestyle. So that's what we do right now, this faux sorry, version of marriage. Dating is really just a shadow of what we were made for, y'all. And when we enter into those relationships operating just kind of on instinct, on what we've learned from the world, on good intentions, when, all, when we're not coming to Scripture and see how is it the two unmarried people relate, but rather just kind of walk into it with the best of intentions, following our feelings, we just find ourselves mimicking marriage. And you know what that means about breakups? That with breakups, we're mimicking divorce. The scars from breakups are real, and they stay with you. So now the question is, what do we do, right? As Brent's saying, we can't date. Oh my gosh, this guy's crazy. I'm never going back to RUF. <laughs> I don't, see, here's the thing about dating. It's an amorphous definition. I'm just saying, this is how I see it being done. This is how I did it and wish that I had it. This is how a lot of other college students have done it and didn't do it. So my argument is not that dating is wrong because, honestly, I don't really know what dating is. I just know that what I kind of talked about earlier is kind of the way we do it. My argument is this. Faking marriage is wrong and destructive. And when you unite your heart and your soul and your mind and your body with people with whom you're not married, then when you rip that relationship apart, you leave scars because really you are in in nothing more than an agreement to be temporarily exclusive. And so you mimic marriage and then we mimic divorce. So what do we do with this? What are some of the applications? Does this mean you can't go out to dinner with a movie with someone? No, you can go out to dinner with a movie and somebody. I mean, you can't go out a couple of times. Yes, you can go out several times. But what might it look like to begin dating, thinking about this reality? Thinking about the reality that if kind of going in unchecked and going in without consulting, you know, wisdom in a lot of ways, really what you're going to do is you're just kind of practice marriage with your boyfriend or your girlfriend. And I don't mean just physically. I mean emotionally, spiritually, all the levels on which we relate. I would say maybe one of the things it would look like to begin to date responsibly is actually this. To live explicitly and appropriately in the categories for relationships that the Bible has. The Bible addresses the way men and women relate to one another. And I think it's appropriate, totally appropriate for us to look at those and say, hey, maybe this is how we should relate. Um, The Bible talks about people who are betrothed. Right? 
an engagement you have agreed that you have said to the world and to your potential spouse, I'm ready to start moving towards marriage with you. Let's set a date. Let's take the physical, spiritual, emotional, physical preparations to get there. And let's move toward that time. It is a decision to love. Love is not a feeling. Love is a decision to do something. There's appropriate behavior for that during engagement. It's not appropriate for you to be really, really emotionally intimate, you know, Soren with his friend girls, whoever they might be. I don't, know. I don't think there are. That's why I said Soren. Um, it's inappropriate at this point in time for Soren to begin to confide in women because Soren is preparing his life to be one with Emma. There's certain things we know to be true about what engagement is. There's marriage. We've talked about all semester. There's um, father-daughter, mother-son. And then there's the last category in which Scripture talks about how men and women relate. Brother-sister. In 1 Timothy 5, 2, says, Treat younger women like sisters in all purity. Actually, earlier it says also, um, Treat younger men like brothers. And in that letter, he's saying the way you relate to fellow Christians with whom you're not married is like a brother and like a sister. Can you have a favorite sister? Absolutely. I have two sisters at different points in times in our relationships. I've been closer to one or the other. Uh, Can you hang out more so with one sister? Sure. I have two sisters at different points in times in our relationships. Hung out more with Melissa. Other times I've hung out more with Martha Jane. Is sexual expression appropriate in this relationship? No. (laughs) I didn't think about how that was illustrating that. (laughs) Those are physical brother-sister relationships. We're talking about spiritual brother and sister, brother and sister in Christ. Y'all know where I'm going. The Bible, it's not appropriate between brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's not because the Bible is not anti-sex. But it's because what we've said all semester in the last two weeks, sexual expression is a powerfully bonding activity. And if dating is by nature a non-committal relationship, then that's incongruous with the nature of sexuality. Sexual expression binds and it says with actions instead of words, I am committed to you. You are mine and I am yours. And to say that with your body inside of a dating relationship is a lie because it stands in opposition to the definition of dating. The very reason that sexuality is so omnipresent on the college campus in the lives of, uh, of people today is because of our confused definition of dating. Because what we've said is our definition of dating is we'll tell each other that we're exclusive even though we're not. And we'll try to believe and live in the reality of this kind of fake exclusivity. And when we live in that kind of fake exclusivity, in that mimicry of marriage, we can justify it, right? We can justify anything with that definition. So to begin to date, maybe in an appropriate way, is maybe we can look to Scripture and find the ways, the categories it talks about how men and women who aren't married are supposed to relate. And I suggest that the one is brother and sister in Christ. We should seek each other's holiness. The way you would seek the holiness of your brother and the way you would seek the holiness of your sister. It doesn't mean you can't have a favorite sister or favorite brother. What else would it look like? This is an important one. Date with the understanding that they're not yours and you're not theirs. 
date with the understanding that they're not yours and you're not theirs. Their time is not yours. Your time is not theirs. Their heart is not yours. Your body is not yours. Your body, your heart are not theirs. And what that means is, if it's no longer your right, hey, you're my girlfriend, I expect you to be with me. Hey, you're my boyfriend, why don't you do this for me? Instead of relating that way, which is how spouses relate, because Elizabeth is mine and I am Elizabeth's, instead of thinking in terms of rights, we'll actually think in terms of privileges. We would date with much more character if we didn't date with the assumption that they're mine, but rather with the assumption that it is a privilege that you would spend time with me. It's a great privilege that you would allow us to be together. And of course, what that means if they're not yours and you're not theirs, you see, we get inside these dating relationships and we define it and we start to act out marriage in a lot of different ways by building intimacy and by beginning to assume they are mine and I am theirs. And you have these rights and expectations and these demands you're allowed to make. And really, the truth of the matter is, your responsibility to one another is just honesty. And if we relate to each other in a way that says, hey, you're not mine, I'm not yours, it's a privilege for us to be together, your responsibility is just honesty. And what that means is, you can date them until you don't want to. That girls, when he asks you out and, you know, I've enjoyed spending time with you, it's been a privilege, I've been honored by it. You don't have to keep dating him. You don't have to kind of enact this long plan of manipulation to kind of get him where you want him to be. You can say, thank you, but I'm not interested anymore. I'm really flattered. I'm honored that you would ask me out. If he's a jerk, immoral, ungodly, disrespectful, you have the right to not go out with him. When you get inside that dating relationship and you begin to kind of spiral into intimacy and bonding with each other, it gets a whole lot harder to get out when you kind of wish you could. Uh, guys, it means that when she says, thank you, I appreciate you asking me, I've enjoyed my time with you, but it's not in the cards for me. Guys, it means we don't get angry. It actually means we grow in respect for a girl who says things like that. That we actually honor them more as a sister because they had the courage to say something like that to us. We learn from it. We're not allowed to be angry. We'll begin to spend time with each other, even with your favorite sister or favorite brother, uh, with the understanding that you're not theirs and they are not yours. The other thing it might look like is, um, or, or one area I guess to address is this, progression in relationship is natural. And it's really okay. And what, what we hope we've been, you've been hearing all semester is that ultimately this kind of exercise of getting knowing someone in the opposite gender is for the purpose of moving towards marriage. And if you find yourself in a relationship where you've gone much further beyond where it's appropriate to go, the Bible actually addresses that very explicitly. If you find yourself that you've grown in intimacy and bonded yourself with someone into a place where it's kind of out of control, the Bible is actually very explicit. 1 Corinthians 7, 9, If they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it's better to marry than to be aflame with passion. You see, people get in these relationships... um, where you get in this intense relationship and you keep trying to fix it because you feel like there's too much going on here. It's too powerful of a relationship. We've got to back off and all this kind of stuff. And the Bible says, if you can't exercise self-control, just get married. Those are Paul's words. And if you can't get married, y'all, then break up. 
If you can't get married, it's fine. Schooling's a priority for you. That's really okay. That's not wrong. It's not biblical. The Bible never says you have to graduate from college to be an adult. Um, But we all believe that. But if you want to say college is a priority for you, that's really okay. But you've got to break up. Because the Bible says you've got to get married. And if you're not willing to get married, break up. And you see what happens is when you get in these intense relationships, this is what happens. It kind of spirals in intimacy to where you've kind of gone beyond the bounds, but you kind of love it and you kind of hate it. And you have this dysfunctional relationship where you basically find yourself in a relationship that you hate with a person that you used to like, and now you're trying to figure out what it means to love them. And when you're in that place where you're finally, where you're in that relationship that you hate the relationship because of where it's gotten, but you know you like this person, but now because you've been all these places with them and bound yourself to them, you find it hard to break up with them, so you're trying to figure out what it means to love them, the relationship just rots from the inside out. Because that was never how it was supposed to be. And it's just one of the ways we take our, the fact that we we're created for marriage and misuse it and corrupt it and find ourselves deeply unhappy. So, the question still remains. If we're not going to get into these kind of heavy, emotional, physical relationships for long periods of time, the question remains, how do you know somebody well enough to get married, right? How do you know them? You've got to spend all, have all these late-night conversations at 3 o'clock in the morning and all this kind of stuff about, like, your deepest fears as a child and the time that you almost drowned and all this kind of stuff and feel like you really know each other. Okay, this is the thing that you might, might not believe me on. You probably haven't believed me on a lot, but... That's okay. You can debate this stuff with me. Um, you, can, you can question anything I say more so than I. Um, the experience outside of high school and college actually bears considerable testimony to this. If they love Jesus and understand the covenant of marriage, that's kind of all you really need to know. And when you get out of college, you're actually going to see this, because Elizabeth and I see it now, Soren's beginning to see it. These people get out of college and they start dating when they're 23, 24, 25. You know what they do? They do this crazy thing where they date for like four months and get engaged and are married within a year. And people begin to do that when they get out of college because what you realize is, I didn't have to do all that stuff to know somebody. I just need to know if they love Jesus and they love covenant, we can be friends. And so they just get married. You don't have to be dating for four years. The things that you learn in your first four years of dating have little to no bearing on your marriage beyond figuring out whether or not they love Jesus and understand marriage. I'm finding out every day that I knew a whole lot less about Elizabeth than I thought when we got married. I'm still discovering all the mysteries that are Elizabeth. Of course, now I have these four other girls, so I have like... <laughs> it's getting a little more complex. Um, and, and what you find out is actually... The other question then, I guess, is also, well, then how do you know, right? So you're saying, all I have to know is they love Jesus, and if they, if they understand covenant, if we can be friends together. I mean, that's basically it. That's really all that it is. That's why people don't date for very long once they get out of college. It's because, again, we've said you're not an adult until you get out of college. And somewhere in the Old Testament, maybe in the Minor Prophets, there's this idea you have to graduate from college to get married. It's not in the Minor Prophets. Um, ultimately, though, how do we figure out if they're the one... Uh, they're the one we're supposed to marry. My brother really helped me with this. He, my older brother is the first one to get married out of all my siblings. And uh, I asked him, I said, when did you know Marnie was the one? And he said, oh, well, that was really easy. It was really clear. And I was like, oh, great. Here's the key. Y'all ready for the key right here? Don't worry, you're going to be dissatisfied. 
He said, when I finish my vows. <laughs> That's when I knew she was the one. So there you go. You want to know when they're the one? That's it. Up until that point, you're not bound to each other. After that point, you are. You know absolutely, without a doubt, with fa- without fail, they're the one. So if you're waiting for that moment, this is what my dad told my brother. It was, it was genius advice, but it sounds horrible. My dad just said, just go try marriage. My brother was kind of waffling. I don't know. I don't know. He said, just try it. <laughs> he tried it. He finished his vows, and he found out she was the one. So y'all, just go try marriage. <laughs> Please don't misuse that. <laughs> Do what? <laughs> So we're just try, just try marriage. Patrick, just try. See, ultimately, what comes down to deciding one of the largest factors in coming that comes down to deciding who you marry. This is frustrating too. Is ultimately timing. Some of y'all have dated people in high school who are wonderful people, and you know if you met them when you were 22 or 23, you probably would have married them. Ultimately, timing is a bigger factor than any of us wanted to admit. Just kind of, if we really wrestle with that, it makes us kind of rest in God's sovereignty a little bit more. Because y'all have met people that maybe even dated people you would have married if you'd met them when you were 25. Because when you met them when you were 25 and you found out they loved Jesus and y'all could be friends, y'all get married. Just try it. So then, that's how we figure out if they're the one. That's how we figure out if, uh, if, if we can marry that person. And lastly, the question is, how do we date, right? I don't know. Sorry, I don't have the answers. I'll just say this, date with gospel character. And this is the way Les says it. Les Newsom, the guy at Ole Miss, he says, Therefore, the only hope for the Christian student in the midst of all these factors is to enter into the experience of dating cloaked in the confidence that only his or her relationship with Jesus can give. You must be wed to Christ before you can look to wed another, not for some fundamentalistic expression of pseudo-spirituality, but because it takes that kind of confidence in Christ to say to the person in whom you're interested, I like being with you, I like seeing you, but we both know that this thing will only end in one of two ways. Either we break up or we get married. So let's pretend that we're grown up enough in Christ to say to one another that we're going to survive this even if it doesn't work. And let's stop worrying about what will happen and enjoy the time that God has given us together for what it is. Just that. Ultimately, the only thing that gives us the kind of confidence to not crush each other in a dating relationship with the, dem- the demands and the expectations for them to be your emotional and spiritual and physical partner, the only thing that will actually give us the kind of confidence to not do that in marriage is if we're rooted and covered with the love of Jesus. And that allows you to get to know people of the opposite gender in the secure place of saying, this relationship's not defined like I want it to be. I want you to be mine and mine to be you, which is really... That instinct in you is God telling you, hey, you were made for marriage. Don't fake it in dating. Get to know him and then get married. But when we're rooted in Jesus, um, when we're, we're in the secure place of knowing the deep and steadfast love of the true lover of our souls who will eternally love us, then when we begin to interact with people of the opposite gender with that reality sitting at the center of who we are, it means that we're comfortable with not making them mine, with not becoming theirs until you're ready to get married. And Les kind of 
One of the ways he said it best is he said relationships actually grow in the most healthy way when they remain the most free. Y'all, enjoy each other's company. Get to know one another. That's good. That's fine. Be brother and sister. When you want to get married, get married. Spend time together and get married. I'm saying everybody needs to get married when they're 21. If y'all all start getting married when you're like 19, 20, and 21, I'll get all these phone calls from parents and lose my job. But y'all, this, the instinct in dating to define the relationship and to have these rituals and to make them ours and to have expectations is really just the part of us in our creational DNA of God saying, hey, you were made for marriage. And so until you're ready for that moment, y'all, enjoy to this company. I'm going to pray. Lord, thank you for our time together. I pray that this would be helpful and beneficial um, for everybody in here, dear Lord. I pray if I've said anything wrong, that you would teach me. If I've not been wise, that you would teach me and that you would teach me through the mouths of the students here. Thank you, dear God, that you are good and our confidence is ultimately in you. In your name we pray. Amen.